The sun was hot and it had reached the high point of noon. And it was beating down and bringing uh, heat and bringing an uncomfortable nature to this journey. But he was undeterred. He was a man on a mission. He had been given orders. He had been given instructions. He had been given a cause, and he was going to live it out. And although the sun was beating down as he walked and journeyed, he would not stop. He would not rest. He wanted to see this thing through. With every breath that he, uh, that he took, and as the blood coursed through his veins, he had a certain uh, 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 decision he had made in his heart that this was something that he had to do. He had to complete. He had to accomplish. It defined him, this journey. So he was walking on purpose forward to complete his task. And there in the middle of the day, as the sun shone brightly and as his companions were trailing because he was out ahead, suddenly the sky got even brighter. And a light came around that was even brighter and hotter than the sun. And the sound and the sights was so intense that it drove him to the ground. And when he fell over, he heard something. His eyes were blinded. He looked up and he could not see. And he heard something. And, and he did not understand it at first. So he just cowered in fear. But he heard the sound. He heard the voice. And it was loud. And it was clear. And it called him by name. The story is found in the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible in front of you, please open it. We're in the book of Acts chapter 9 today. If you did not bring a Bible, there's one in the pew right in front of you. You can pull it out and follow along with us. The Bible tells us that a certain young man was on a journey, a purposeful journey. The Bible tells us that this man had a certain character quality. He was dogged. He was determined. He was ruthless. And the Bible tells us that he had been given instructions to carry out a certain execution order, and he was on his way from Jerusalem to a city called Damascus. And while on the road, and quite possibly at high noon, as he was making his way with determination in his eyes, ready to complete his task, suddenly something stopped him in his tracks, dropped him to the ground, and called him by name. Book of Acts chapter 9 says, <clears throat> there was a young man, a young man who was uh, breathing out, this is verse 1, chapter 9, murderous, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in the city of Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. You've probably heard a story before and know about it, but let me just introduce you to this character. This was a young man who had been raised in the, in the best schools, the best religion schools at the time that money could afford. This was a young man well-learned in, 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 in spiritual things. He was what we would call in the New Testament a Pharisee. Not just a student of the word, but someone who, uh, to their knowledge, followed every bit and letter of what they thought 
was God's intention for them. He was a stickler for rules. And by the time we meet him, we know that he has been uh, carrying out his singular task, which is to capture, seize, and imprison anyone who would subscribe to the way. You see that there? Capital W, the way. This was a little moniker given to the people who would follow the way of a certain man named Jesus. <clears throat> and the Bible tells us that uh, he had been carrying out this, this task of looking for and trying to track down people who followed the way of Jesus and wherever he would find them, Greeks, Hebrews, whoever he would find, he would imprison them. And he had been doing it all over his hometown in Jerusalem. But he wanted to go further. So the Bible tells us that he went to the rulers, the high priests, and he said, give me marching orders. Give me authority. Give me a sign, a symbol, so that I can go to Damascus. And I can go there and look for those that claim to follow Jesus. He had been so successful in Jerusalem at capturing people who subscribed to Jesus' teaching that fear had spread throughout the land. By the time we meet uh, this character in the book of Acts, Jesus has already left. His disciples have been spreading out the message, the good news as we call it, the gospel, and people are, are, are buying in. They're finding out about Jesus. They're learning about the Messiah. They're learning about different things that they did not know before. And, and little communities like ours, congregations are, are, are sprouting up in places. This young man, along with his, his cohorts, decided this was not good. They were part of the established system of beliefs, the Pharisees, the Jews. They were, they were, they were threatened by these little groups, so they sought to stamp it out. So what they did is they looked for anyone who would talk about Jesus, teach about Jesus, and they would try to imprison them. And he had been so successful in the city of Jerusalem that anyone who would dare believe in Jesus had to fear for their life. And many of them ran away to a neighboring city called Damascus. Hundreds, maybe thousands, may have run away. Damascus was a little further from the center of the Jewish world. And there maybe they could have uh, a, a place to hide. But there were, uh, there were uh, Jews and Jewish synagogues in Damascus as well. So, so this young man asked for permission, asked for letters of authority so he could go there and search for anyone who would subscribe to the teachings of Jesus and put them in jail. And the Bible tells us that he was of, of, of singular mentality. He was good at his job. This is what defined him. And he was on the road. Bible says here that he asked for letters, verse 2, chapter 9. So that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, men or women, he wasn't messing around. He wasn't just looking for, uh, you know, men, people who would, uh, you know, get involved in these political and theological debates. Anyone, men or women, he would take them as prisoners. And the Bible tells in verse 3 that as he was getting close to the city of Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a loud voice say to him, Saul. That was his name. Saul. You recognize the name? You've heard it. It's probably familiar to you. The Bible says that he was on his journey with uh, some of his goon squad, and as they were making their way, getting ready to arrive in the city of Damascus where he was going to carry out his mission to look for and imprison anyone who would dare believe in Jesus. Suddenly there was a great light, brighter than the sun, and it drove him to his knees. 
And then he heard a sound, sound of a voice that called him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Have you heard the story before? You have, right? It's a very familiar story in Christian circles. If, if you're new to the Bible, maybe you haven't heard it, but in Christian circles, it's a very familiar story. It's the conversion story. A story of, of something that happens in a person's life that changes everything. And the Bible tells us here that this young man was bent on violence. In fact, in case you did not know, the first time we encountered this young man, he's, he's much younger. It's earlier in the book of Acts. He is present there when the first um, martyr and in, 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 in the followers of Jesus is killed. Uh, this is from the earlier part of the book of Acts where Stephen is stoned for believing in Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Saul is there holding people's jackets while they're picking up rocks and killing him. This is how he grew up. He grew up believing and thinking that anyone who would subscribe to anything other than his views of Judaism was the enemy. And those that would dare follow a, a carpenter from Nazareth called Jesus were worthy of imprisonment and possibly death. And that it was his job to take them out. So when he got old enough, and when he had risen up through the ranks of the Pharisees, he began to carry out this, this, this calling, this purpose in his life, to take out anyone who believed in Jesus and the Bible tells us they were so successful that he made his way to Damascus. And on his way there, he intended to take out men and women, quite possibly children. He was ruthless and effective. But as he got close to the city, suddenly there was a light that shone and a voice that called him by name with these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? It's a fascinating story um, uh, because... Up until this time, uh, there had been uh, sightings or, or evidences of miracles and wonders, but oftentimes in the New Testament, all this uh, gravitates around the person of Jesus himself when he's here. But the time we read the story, Jesus is no longer here. His disciples have been making their way throughout the, the, the first century, making their way throughout the region and trying to spread the message of Jesus Christ. But, but Jesus is not actually present here, and yet this word comes audibly out of the heavens and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul responds here, look at this verse 5, by saying, who are you? Has, has anyone in here ever heard voices? You laugh because, because you probably have. Um, no, I mean, something like this, where something supernatural happens, and, and calls you by name. It's odd. It's strange. It's, it's not business as usual. And the Bible tells us here that, 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 that the, the sound came out. Verse 7 tells us that the men traveling with Saul were speechless because they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. This young man on his way to carry out his murderous threats was toppled over by this bright light, and then he heard this, this, this voice call him by name, Saul. But everyone else could hear, but they saw nothing. Saul responded in the same way that you and I might. If someone, if a voice spoke out and called us by name, and Saul said, who, who is, who's talking to me? Who, who is this? Is anyone there? Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
It's fascinating because, like I said, Jesus has been present physically, but in this moment, he's not here. But we have an actual recorded instance where he speaks from the heavens and says, I am Jesus. But what's even, what's even uh, more uh, interesting about this phrase is that he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Clearly, Jesus is not here. So Paul isn't, or Saul isn't actually chasing Jesus. He's chasing those who believe in Jesus. But Jesus says, they are me. I am them. You are persecuting me. There's a strong word, persecution. In Adventist circles, if you're part of the Adventist faith tradition, it's, a, it's one that we know and have heard all our lives. Persecution. This idea that we would be uh, harassed, uh, that we would be sometimes uh, ridiculed, maybe imprisoned for our beliefs. And if you grew up in the Adventist church like I did, we were told, you better get ready. The time of the persecution is coming. When you will not have the freedom to worship as you please and gather as you want and observe the things that you have chosen to believe. But there will be a time when these freedoms will be taken from you and you will be persecuted for your beliefs. You, uh, anybody nod, nod your head with me if you were taught the same things as I? So my parents taught me there was going to be a time that we were going to run away, hide up in the mountains, pack our stuff. And there was going to be a time when we were going to live in fear. Well, this is essentially what's happening here. Those who believe in Jesus and are subscribing to the way are living in fear, running for their lives from someone like this man, Saul. And when, when, when the voice comes and confronts him and says, why are you persecuting me? Saul has no answer. Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. It's a very well-known conversion story. And you've known because you've probably read this before or have heard the story. That from this point on, Saul's life changes. In fact, it changes so dramatically that he stops being Saul. And then goes by the name of Paul. Paul, who becomes what we call uh, in theologian circles, the greatest theologian ever. He wrote the majority of the books in the, in the New Testament and becomes an advocate for the way, for Jesus' teaching throughout not just uh, the land of the Jews, but the Greeks and, and Samaritans and all over, all the Gentile world, including you and me. Saul becomes Paul. Everything changes in this one instant. And it's what we like to call a conversion story. When someone goes from being a non-believer to a believer in Jesus. From some, someone goes from being a, a, a non-Christian to suddenly being a Christian. You know what the word means, Christian? In the Greek, Christianos, it's actually a derivative of the word Christos, which is uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So the Christ is the Messiah or the anointed one. So by the time Jesus comes around, they're living, it's, it's a Greek world. And, 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 uh, uh, and though they speak Aramaic, a form of Hebrew, uh, the, the Greek world speaks in Koine Greek. Even the New Testament is written in Greek. And the name given to the Messiah is Christos. And those who would follow the Christos are called Christianos, followers of Christ. And in this moment, we have Saul following the Christ, but with a very different intention. 
on his way to the road of Damascus, he is following the Christ, but he aims to stamp him out. He is following those who subscribe to the, to the teachings of the Christ, but he aims to imprison them and snuff out their way of living. But there on this road, the famous road to Damascus, he encounters the Christ himself. And when a voice calls him by name, he responds by saying, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus. I am Christ. I am Messiah. The one you are chasing. The Bible tells us here, but the men traveling with him were speechless. They heard the sound, did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened, verse 8, chapter 9, verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. And the Bible tells us that they led him by the hand into the city of Damascus. If you read the rest of the story, there he is. Suddenly, everything that defined him, everything that he had set out to do, the things that he'd been living, uh, his mission in life was suddenly taken from him. He could not see. He could not guide himself anywhere. He was at the mercy of other people suddenly. And for three days, his sight was taken. And there, the Bible tells us that he was blind. He did not eat or drink for three days. And God brought somebody in his life to help steer him in the right direction. But I want to focus for just a moment on what happens when, when, when Saul encounters this voice, this Christ. When he meets him, Saul says, who are you? And the voice says, the Christ says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We know that part. But listen to this part. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I, I've never really paid attention to that before until now. Maybe you've skipped over it too if you read the story. Get up, go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. You know why that little thing fascinates me? Because it's the one thing nobody likes to hear. <laughs> right? Nobody likes to be told what to do. Am I right? Am I right? It happens at a very early age. I, I know because I'm living it. My kids are, you know, three, almost three and five. And I don't know where they learn it, but they learn it. It's really easy. They go, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Has your kid ever uttered those phrases? Who teaches them that? <clears throat> I never said that. They go to each other. Oh, you can't tell, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. We don't like to be told what to do. It's the one thing that we hate. Why is that? Why is that? It's almost as if we could be doing something and then something tells us, yeah, that's what you, you should be doing. Suddenly, we don't want to do that anymore. Does that ever happen to you? Like you're going in, you're getting ready to wash the dishes, and your mom said, that's right, you better wash the dishes. Well, no, no, I ain't going to do it no more. It takes all the joy out of it. Don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. It's a phrase we learn when we're two or three. It's part of human nature to determine for ourselves who's in charge. And you know who is in charge? Who's in charge? I'm in, I'm in charge. I'm the boss. That's the way we like to live it. I'm the boss. I'm the person who directs myself. We live in a culture and a community that bows down at the altar of the great I. 
right? Come on. It's no secret why uh, Apple has succeeded beyond their wireless dreams by using the very simple thing that drives us all, the iPhone, the iPad. You didn't even know you wanted one when they came out, and now you can't live without one. They fade into the thing that drives you is the I, the I, I this. I, I, I'm telling you, I'm living it. My son, the first few words that came out of his mouth is I think, I everything. I eat, I eat, I eat. I'm hungry. I change. And then he said, my iPad, my iPad. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Our human nature thrives on the idea of being centered on the I, on ourselves. We were born with a, with a, uh, a propensity for being self-centered. You know who the most egotistical people are in the world? Babies. Man. Am I right? Don't get me wrong. I love babies. But they don't think about anybody else except themselves. They want to eat when they're hungry. And they don't want to wait for nothing. And they, you know, they all scream and cry until you give them exactly what. Am I right? Am I right? That's how you were born. We were all like that. Second we came out, we had all the tools necessary to take care of ourselves. Whatever we could not provide for ourselves, we were going to use our cries until we get it, whatever that is. Our human nature is that we will be driven by our own appetites, our own interests, and the things that are inside of us. We do not like to be told what to do. We like to be in charge and deciding for ourselves what to do. Now, I understand some of you all indecisive out there. You have trouble. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to eat. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to wear. But in the end, when somebody tells you, I know this happens all the time, how about Chinese? No, I don't want that. Am I right? Yeah, I know. This generation, my friends, we're all like, hey, let's go out to eat. What do you guys want? I don't know, whatever. Let's go for Italian. No, I don't want that. How about Mexican? No, 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 I don't want that either. But anything else, anything else. Oh, okay. How about Korean? No, I don't want that. You don't want to be told what to do. You like to have this option of, of coming to a conclusion and determining. Because when everything is stripped away, what drives us innately is the I, ourself. And what was driving Saul on this road to Damascus is something that he had chosen for himself. Yes, he had gone to schools, yet he, he, he was drinking the punch. He had bought into the beliefs and the ideas that those that subscribed to the ways of Jesus were lunatics and they were crazy and they needed to be stamped out. But in the end, this was about gaining fame and recognition and power for himself. He didn't have to go to Damascus. He was plenty successful in Jerusalem, but he sought out these orders. He wanted to carry this out because it defined his appetite, his hunger for power to bring those into submission. And the Bible says here that when suddenly on the road, the Messiah himself comes face to face with Saul, he tells him, from now on, I'm going to tell you what to do. See, this is the moment of conversion from Saul being a non-believer to a believer. This is the moment where he goes from being a non-Christ follower, a non-Christian, a non-Christus follower, to suddenly being a follower. See, the difference between not being a Christian and being a Christian, the defining moment in a Christian 
is whose orders you are following. This month, we're engaged in a series called Everyday Christian here in our church. An opportunity to wrestle and to think about what it means to be a Christian. Do you know that there are uh, 2.1 billion Christians in the world today? 2.1 billion, that's a lot of Christians. A third, a fourth to a third of the world's population is Christians. Would you have guessed that? Well, if you're into Google, probably. 2.1 billion Christians. What does that tell you, honestly? It tells you that there's a lot of people who have subscribed to this idea who claim to be Christ followers. But consider for just a moment... Who's really in charge of those 2.1 billion Christians? Whose orders are they really following? A little closer to home, <clears throat> uh, uh, of those 2.1 billion Christians, 1.17 billion are Catholic. Uh, so they take their marching orders from, well, no one right now. Uh, <laughs> soon, though, you know, there'll be some specific directives. But uh, the other, you know, one something billion are from various different Christian denominations, largely Protestant. And did you know there are 38,000 Christian denominations? 38,000. We, Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Seventh-day Adventist, not to be confused with the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement or the Adventist Church of the Promise or the Sabbath Rest. There's a lot of those too, in case you did not know. Um, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have 17.2 million Adventists across the world. That's a lot of Adventists, right? Probably too much in certain places. Uh, certain ghettos of Adventism, crazy things happen in there. Put too many in a box, that's crazy things. Pollocks go crazy. But 17.2 million, that's a lot of Adventists that claim to follow the Christ. But my question for you is, if you are part of this big group of Christians, or, or, or more specifically, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, what does that mean? How would you define that? What's fascinating about our church and every other denomination is that there's such a, there's such a wide variety of beliefs, lifestyles, and ideas, even amongst those that we consider part of the same faith community. Am I right? So what defines us as actual Christ followers? Because I have this tendency to believe that a lot of us would identify with the term Christian, but we have no idea what that means. In our modern day culture, nowadays here in the year 2013, when I say Christian, when I say to you what is a Christian or what is Christian, there's lots of different ways to answer that. You know, it's a genre of music, a style of clothing, you know, uh, Christian bookstores, uh, there's a Christian radio, um, and uh, sometimes it's hard to figure out what it really means or what it really is. But if someone were to ask you, well, what is a Christian? The basic definition of the word is a Christ follower, but then someone might ask you, what does that mean? What is, a, what is a Christ follower? According to Saul's conversion story, a Christ follower is someone who now takes their orders from the Christ. Did you catch that? Up until this point, Saul is living life at whatever he thinks is right, 
whatever theological uh, assertion that he believes is correct, he's living this out with zeal, with enthusiasm. A lot like Seventh-day Adventists. Man, we're gung-ho on Adventism. Woo! Don't get me started. 28 fundamental beliefs. Woo! Zeal. But now, when he meets the Christ, the Christ says, now I'm going to tell you what you do. I will tell you, you will be told what you must do. See, here's, here's the moment. We're talking about everyday Christians. You might or might not identify yourself with a Christian. You, I've, I've heard people say, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not really a Christian. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And I said, what, what in the world does that mean? Or others will say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. Okay, that's fine. But what is the Christian? Some say, I'm a Christian, but I just don't go to church. Okay, is that what, a Christian, is that what defines a Christian? Somebody who goes to church? Some people would say yes. What does it mean, Christian? Well, it means I go to church once a week. Is that what a Christian is? Is that what an everyday Christian would be? Somebody who goes to church once a week? Is church attendance the one thing that defines a Christian? I say no. Absolutely not. Is it part of? Yeah, we'll get to that later. But what defines a Christian according to the conversion story? Better yet, according to Jesus' own words, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, read there, if anyone would be a follower of me, if anyone would be a follower of the Christ, if anyone would be a Christian, then you must, this is Mark chapter 8, verse 38, then you must, anyone? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. There's a lot of stuff hidden in there, but those are very simple concepts. Deny yourself. This is what's happening in this moment. Paul wants to satisfy his thirst for blood here, and, uh, and the, the voice from heaven comes and he says, no, no, no. It's not going to be about you anymore. Deny yourself. Take, your, take up your cross and follow me. To be a Christian means you take your marching orders from the Christ. This is a very abstract concept for a lot of you. Because I know, I talk to you after church or during the week, and you might say to me, well, how do I do that? What does that mean? Well, we're going to get real specific next week, so you make sure and come back. But let me give you a, a, a quick hint. If you want to be a follower of the Christ, well, his story's in here. The things that he does, his footsteps are, are spelled out in great detail in this book. You cannot be a follower of the Christ if you're ignorant about who the Christ is. Doesn't that make sense? You cannot claim to, to take your marching orders from the Christ if you've never met him. And you don't know what he's, what he's about and, and what he says. You can claim to be a follower of Christ as probably 2.1 billion people do. But who really is being told what they must do by the Christ? This is a, I think this is a personal question for you to answer. So let me let you off the hook, okay? Just showing up here at church is fantastic. We love it that you're here. But this does not make you a Christian, okay? Church attendance does not make you a Christian. Christian, by Jesus' definition, or by what we've just read, is someone who takes... They're marching orders from the Christ. Someone who is told what they must do by the Christ. A Christ follower. An imitator of Christ. 
someone who patterns their life after the Christ. What we do in church is we discuss the Christ. We lift up the Christ. We praise the Christ. We read his words. We pray about it. We expect him to meet us here. We expect him to inspire us here. But this is just where we learn about the Christ. There, outside of these doors, is where you find out whether or not you are taking those marching orders from the Christ. It happens there. Your Christianity is not defined in here. It is defined by what you do once you leave here. In here, we will simply lift up his name. In here, we will simply praise the God who gave us his son, the Christ. In here, we will learn about him and challenge each other with these words. But out there is where the stuff is happening. The test of Christianity happens when you leave these doors. Happens when you choose what comes out of your mouth and how you direct your conversations and your actions and your businesses and your families. Next week when we come together, we're going to talk about some of those specifics, how to, in our conversation about everyday Christianity. But I want to challenge you in the largest sense of the word this day. Are you a Christian? Who's telling you what to do? Whose directions are you following? I submit to you today that Jesus Christ has a plan and a purpose for you, for me and for you. Something marvelous, something that can define your life completely differently than what you're accustomed to. And I believe that he has come to this church and to this community to call us out from what we've been doing and to give us new marching orders. It might come at a price. It might come at a price. But those of us who follow the Christ will never be disappointed. That's a biblical promise. So let's challenge each other. Let's learn about the Christ and let's pattern our lives after him.